Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You're listening to 3RRR. We've got an hour of science for you now with a whole lot of guests today, and uh, I've got Chris KP in the studio. Good morning, sir. Hello there. How are you this day? <laughs> <laughs> There's something wrong with that. <laughs> I know, but I love it for that reason alone. And yeah. How are you? You good? Yeah, I'm good. I'm uh, I'm well, actually. Good. Um, I went for a very large walk during the week, and I regretted mm. it afterwards. But I feel better now. Yeah, if that's this is the thing about the long walk. Yeah. there is there is often a yeah, there's an arm length de- you know, delay between. This is going to feel good at some point. Yeah, and I realised they need yeah. new shoes. Oh, but did you yeah. realise that halfway through the walk? Uh, <laughs> later? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at a bad time for me. So Point of I, no return. Yeah, yeah, and then I went shoe shopping yesterday, and you know, this is how the show starts. You know, We're talking about shoes, but um, and no, um, oh. I, I, no success, so I just came home. Still got the options. Oh, very disappointing. Yep, oh, okay. I'm a bad shopper. People know. Okay. Yeah, bad shopper. Oh, yeah. I'm a very fussy shopper. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, anyway, we uh, digress. We have, uh, we're going to talk about a few things today. We're going to be talking about physics for the first half of the show. So if you've got a beverage um, you know, down the hatch right now, get ready. <laughs> it's going to be tough. Uh, we'll be fine. And after that, we're going to talk about um, some of the genetic testing that we do or do not do mm. uh, in hospitals here in Australia. When children are born, uh, which is a big topic of controversy at the moment, which yeah. we're going to explore in quite a bit of detail. But first of all, in the studio with us is Professor Virginia Kilborn, who is the Chief Scientist from Swinburne University of Technology. Virginia, welcome back. We've had you on the show before. Yeah, thanks so much for having me again, Shane. It's great to be here. It's great. Now, I have to say, Chief Scientist, when did this happen? When is this become a title at universities it's uh, wild we think it's a new title yeah. actually mm. we don't we haven't found another chief scientist at a university which right. now that there is one it seems crazy that every university doesn't have one it's such an important um, topic for universities um, yeah. so I'm really glad that Swinburne's decided to not only create the title but Give allow to me you. to be part of it <laughs> that's fantastic now we're going to dive into that more but we've also got associate professor Susie Shee from the School of Physics at University of Melbourne welcome back Susie thank you it's been, to be here again a while since uh, you've been on as well. It has, so. and finally, finally, I'm allowed in the studio. <laughs> yeah, you make that sound like we wouldn't let you personally in the studio. <laughs> there was some virus, going some virus around. going around. Yeah. Still going around, still yeah, going around. True. But uh, we swabbed you guys before you came in, so you know, hosed you down, seemed fine. So. Did you genetically test us as well, or does that <laughs> we, come later? Uh, no, we, well, we clean. Everyone. We have got we have got yeah. the rinsed water. That we can test that. <laughs> the waste water. You could tell the difference between Chris and I uh, in terms of intelligence. We both filled up some water before we came into the studio. <laughs> I just turned the tap on and popped it into a glass. Chris made sure it was cold before, before he filled it wasn't up. That I didn't, didn't trust you. I just wanted to make sure yeah. I was going to enjoy the experience. So I've got a glass of hot water, and Chris has got a glass of cold water, mm-hmm. which is yeah, the way it goes. Now. But, Back to you, Virginia, um, Chief Scientist. So what is that role in the university? Like, what, what is your job as Chief Scientist? So I had to create the role, actually, and mm. think, what could a Chief Scientist do that, you know, is a role that isn't currently filled by other roles? Right. And so what I'm really focusing on is four areas. Um, education is obviously incredibly important. Um, policy development within the yep. institution, but really across the sector and nationally mm. and worldwide. Um, equity. 
um, is really important and that research excellence and innovation. And so I'm trying to help drive all of these factors within the organisation and also across the sector and um, a little bit nationally as well. Yeah. And can you still balance that with your own work? Because often, you know, when people go into like deputy vice chancellor research type roles, they usually give up their their own research. Are you still able to keep doing your great stuff? I do a little bit. Yeah. I really, I love astronomy. That's my background. Mm. It's what I train to do. And so I do try to carve out some time to continue to um, try to understand the mysteries of the universe, if I can say that. Yeah. Well, so, and I have to ask, but is Swinburne soon going to have like a chief architect, a chief lawyer? Is there going to be other, uh, in the arts in particular is where I'd love to see something because I think that's, it's often forgotten. Yeah. Um, will there be similar roles in other areas, do you think? Oh, I don't know. We haven't really talked about it, but I guess it does open the uh, the floor for more of these sort of discipline-related roles that take a more of a leadership role yeah. um, within and outside the institution. Yeah, no, that sounds good. All right, uh, Susie, we have to talk about the July lectures in physics because that, yes. of course, is why we have the two of you in here. These things, I remember these when I was an undergrad um, in physics and they were... They go back to 1968. They, well, I was an undergrad in 1968. <laughs> 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 it was a little later, um, but yeah. They, so they that was up, the point. They, yeah. It predates you. Yeah, it predates me. <laughs> no, um, it doesn't age you. So <laughs> so Chris is laughing, yeah, but it's close though. <laughs> <laughs> it's close. Um, so, but when? So they started in in sixty eight, and but they've been public lectures all the way through. Yes, that's right. So, um, in you know, in the grand spirit of uh, public and demonstration lectures, Melbourne University set out to, you know create that connection with the greater mm. public and the, the sub- subject of physics and it turned out to be an unexpected hit so yeah. every friday evening in july since 1968 uh so four four, four or five times depending yep. on yep. the number of fridays yep. um there is a public lecture on campus at melbourne uni in now what is one of the biggest theaters on campus because it's quite popular yeah hundreds of people come out every friday night through the cold and dark and rain to hear about physics yeah. um, for, for lectures designed to be accessible to people without necessarily having a, a physics background or someone who just has a, a general interest. And they've covered all sorts of topics. And when I looked back through all the um, sort of previous titles of the lectures, what's wonderful as well is physics has changed a lot since yeah. 1968. Yeah, and so you have yeah. these things you know, the, where they're speculative about certain things in physics and then 10 years later there'll be a, a grand lecture right. about the discovery and, and so it's actually it's a nice record of some of the biggest the biggest yeah. hit, biggest hits in physics really. Because I'm just thinking about that, like so the Higgs boson would be an example. That's there a great example. There's a 50 year delay between theoretical you know prediction of by Peter Higgs yeah. and the actual discovery or you know demonstration of that particle being real in 2012. Um, yeah, in 2012, yep. and you know that's like yeah. So you go from one end to the other in those lectures, right? And in the meantime, you see you know. You see lectures about people from people talking about things like the Large Hadron Collider and the design and how it's going to work and all these things. Yeah. And then later, yeah, you get you get lectures about um, you know how the Higgs was actually discovered. And now this year, um, we're halfway through our series this year. It's yep. so halfway through July. Um, and our first um, speaker this this year was Professor Elisabetta Barbario, who was involved in the Higgs discovery. Right. Um, and now she's. You know, she and her research teams have stepped forward to ask, well, okay, what comes next? Right. And the big question she's trying to answer is about dark matter. So she gave a wonderful lecture that'll be online on um, on our YouTube and on our website soon um, about building this enormous uh, detector 
two kilometres underground in a gold mine in rural Victoria to build the first Southern Hemisphere dark matter detector, and she gave a lovely overview of um, of that experiment yeah uh so so yeah again you know it just keeps rolling forward the discoveries the experiments and and the speakers in the, the yeah. july elections i remember going to them originally and they're in i think and correct me if i'm wrong it's called the hercus theater yes. um and you know, there's a little theater in the physics annex and then there was a time when it went wild and they had to broadcast it into the laby theater which was mm. the one next door the overflow, the yeah. overflow you know there's too many people and you know someone i, I think it really came down to fire codes because in, you know, in the old <laughs> days you just line yeah. them up in the aisles yeah. and then someone said, hang on a minute, uh, we probably shouldn't do this. And so they moved them into a second theatre. But now it's in – is it in the Glyn Davis building? Or, uh, yeah, so yeah. just across from physics is uh, the sort of Melbourne School of Design or yep. what used to be called the architecture building. Yep. Um, and down in the basement there they have one of the largest theatres on campus. So we're now housed in there every year. Yeah. Uh, wonderful venue, um, really fun, and it's really nice to have the whole audience in one room rather yeah. than sitting yeah. them across, <laughs> across to Different yeah. rooms, um, and we have so the lectures start at six thirty. Um, they're free. Yep. And for an hour before that, we have a sort of drinks and nibbles and sort of networking, and uh, it's a lovely thing for members of the public and uh, people from our physics department, uh, students, staff, you know, to sort of mingle and then all, yeah. all go in and, and watch these lectures. It's, yeah, well, it's a so. lovely event. Now. Virginia, you're giving the last one in the series, is that right, or the next one? Uh, the next one. The next one. Next week. Um, so next Friday. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to be talking about? Don't well, give away too much. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. give you a little bit of a hint. Uh, so I'm going to be talking about a topic that I've been thinking about for quite a while, um, which is on dark galaxies. Hey, say and what? So, yeah. yes, what's a, what's a dark and what's a galaxy? Uh, we've heard yeah. of dark matter and what's a dark galaxy? And so when Susie asked me to um, to give a lecture, she told me that the um, topic is extreme physics. And I thought this is one of those really extreme areas. And so we know that galaxies, like our own Milky Way, like when you go up and look out in the night sky, you'll see the Milky Way stretching right across mm. the night sky made up of um, billion stars or so. Yep. And it also has um, dust and gas and um, obviously stars but and planets and us, but yep. also dark matter. And what theorists have been looking at is how do galaxies form from the beginning of the universe um, until today? And there was a mismatch between the theory and the um, observations where the theorists predicted many, many more galaxies than what we actually see in our night sky. Right. And so there was this idea that maybe there's a whole heap of galaxies out there that just haven't had dense enough gas to form stars. So... So until you mentioned this topic, I kind of assumed that, you know, so dark matter is out somewhere out there infiltrating the universe. It never occurred to me that it would form galaxies, although that makes total sense. But is there any reason for that to make sense? Do we, does dark matter necessarily operate, if you like, or interact the same as normal matter? Do we know that? So we know that it um, doesn't interact um, we can't see any forms of interactions but it with is dark, with itself with itself yeah okay but what we think it well what we um, see is that it is um, has a mass and so mm, okay. it has gravity and when there's gravity that attracts everything including the gas um, and um, other other matter so we expect it to behave the same way because it's in the same conditions and we it, it, it behaves under gravity so yeah. it, it comes together in clumps uh, under gravity, it'll fall together, and we think that's sort of seeds okay. galaxy formation. Mm. So then we have the, the gas um, falling into what we what we see as these um, dark matter um, gravitational 
we call them um, potential wells. So you can imagine the gas sort of fa- falling into this well of gravity, so cool. basically, and forming forming a galaxy. But to form stars, the gas has to get dense enough for the stars to light up, for yeah. the, those nuclear processes to go on. And so okay. imagine if we have the dark matter and the gas, but it's not dense enough to actually form stars. And that's one of these questions that physicists and astronomers have been thinking about really carefully since we found this mismatch between theory and observation. So, nice. so that's fascinating. So, so what you're saying, so dark matter everywhere, dark matter in either type of galaxy, doesn't matter what sort of galaxy we're talking about, we're going to see that. Well, we're not going to see it, but we're going to assume that's there. We see the gravitational impact of that. But what you're talking about is an entire galaxy where no stars or very few stars perhaps have formed. Are visible. Uh, Well, yeah, are visible. And and you could just have a million or a billion Jupiters and like objects floating around there that never really got to the mass necessary for for fusion. Is that right? Maybe not Jupiters, but maybe just gas. Just so gas, yeah. just, just hydrogen gas and maybe a bit of helium and, right. you know, some, some of the higher order elements. But we know that um, the gas has to get to a critical density for it to form stars. And so this is the thought experiment, is what if we just had um, gas that mm. isn't um, dense enough to form stars? And we can see this in the outskirts of some of the really big and faint galaxies, yep. is that we have a whole heap of gas that we can detect with radio telescopes. Yep. Um, so we see the gas, but we can't see stars there. And so then you think, well, what if there was a galaxy that, that continues the whole way through the galaxy, that this mm. gas is just not dense enough to form stars? That's wild. Yeah. Now, yeah. great idea. How do you detect it? <laughs> so Because so, obviously gravitationally you can detect objects yes. um, through lensing of distant objects beyond them and so forth. Yep. But, but is that all you would do here is like um, hope that like, – because you can't see these at all. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you could look for gravitational signals, as you said. The other thing that we can do is actually just look at the gas. Right. And so what my research has been for the last 25 years or so has been looking at hydrogen gas um, in – in the local universe. Right. And so what the way that we do that is to look um, through, uh, use radio telescopes such as the Parkes Radio Telescope and now the Square Kilometre Array mm-hmm. um, Pathfinder that's been built in Western Australia. Yep. So radio telescopes detect radio waves from the universe and hydrogen gas actually emits at 21 centimetres in the radio. And so we can actually detect hydrogen all through the universe just by pointing our radio telescope at it. Wow. So... Are we like what's the expect like when you go through all these theoretical predictions one of the things i know that astronomers are great at doing is determining what the incidence rate of these objects should be and then working out when we should detect it yeah so is there a guess at the moment like we, we kind of knew that with gravitational waves right i mean we kind of knew what the frequency of detection should be and there was a guess and it actually came out a lot quicker than we thought but is there a guess to when we would perhaps pick up one of these galaxies so we do actually have some really good predictions on um, how many dark matter dark matter galaxies, I guess mm. there should be. And um, but what we don't know is um, how many of those have gas. And so we actually don't have the the exact theory to predict how many we should see. Yep. So there's an okay. order of magnitude difference in between what we see and what we predict in terms of dark matter. But we don't know whether the gas necessarily follows this mm. or not. And so that's where the observations are really trying to come in yeah. and um, and close that gap. This is wild stuff. We're mm. gonna we're gonna take a break in a second uh, just for some station announcements. But do you? wake up every day like I do, and this is a big admission, and just check the Twitter feed of the James Webb Space Telescope and see what's up. 
Absolutely. I love it. Love it. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I'm there every day. All bullshitting aside, the stuff coming out of that thing after, it's only been up for a year. It's but pretty It is nuts. wild, isn't it? It's oh, wild. it's just changing our view of the yeah. universe. It's unbelievable. You couldn't even believe that some of the images you see that are, um, that you, you can hardly believe that they're an image that's been taken by a telescope. Yeah. And some of the ones like I, I know, like, it's, it's kind of, you know, you know, when you're watching a TV show and you're getting towards the end of the hour or however long and you realize they're not going to make it. Mm. And it's going to be a con- be continued. Right? <laughs> when, when I look at some of the images with uh, James Webb on those early galaxies, like really early in the universe, I'm like, they didn't have enough time. Yeah. How did they form so early on in the universe's history? Like, what's going on, Virginia? Yeah, we have a mismatch between theory <laughs> yeah, and observations. No. <laughs> we have to have to resolve. How exciting is that? I mean, that in the first wild. year, we've yeah. broken broken our galaxy formation models in some way, or yeah. we don't understand the observations. And so, how exciting is that to yeah. be in that first year do something that we just did not predict with that telescope? Yeah, and the idea that perhaps the universe is not as young as we think it is. I mean, some of these ideas that are floating around are just mind blowing. Yeah, it's probably more on the galaxy formation yeah. than the universe age. Um, but it's one way or the other we're going to have to resolve it. I think it's what. All right, let's take a break because uh, Chris is getting too excited. <sighs> <laughs> we'll be back in a minute, folks. Uh, we're talking physics, so uh, hang in there. We'll be back in a moment. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Welcome back, people. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. We've got Professor Virginia Kilborn from Swinburne University of Technology and Associate Professor Susie Shee from the University of Melbourne in the studio. We've just been geeking out about the James Webb during the break, which is, I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean you've got to do it, right? Got I mean, to do it, yeah. Chris is feeling a little left out, but he's okay. I'll be fine. <laughs> now, uh, Susie, so we've just been talking a bit about uh, what Virginia is going to be talking to in her lecture coming up next Friday. Then there's the fourth one, yes. uh, and that is, I believe, going to be about a stellar crime scene. Yes, so the fourth lecture, which is Friday 28th of July, um, is by Associate Professor Katie Orkadal, who's mm-hmm. um, uh, been with the University of Melbourne for uh, about four or five years, the same time I have, okay. um, and is a, a huge rising star in the astrophysics scene, uh, and she's going to be talking about... A rising star nice. in the astrophysics yeah, very scene. Good, very very nice. Do you like? Do you yeah, I love that. that? Thank yeah. you. Did you just do that? Like, did you did you spend time? I on make that? these things without intending it. <laughs> That's apparently, what... apparently my puns just seep in without it. me intending it. it. Um, so, yeah, a solar crime scene, piecing together the life and death of stars. So one of the things that Katie studies is how we can tell how uh, the end of a star's life is going to happen, so whether right. it's going to fizzle out, whether it's going to go supernova, which type of supernova, um, and how we can look at a star today and figure out what's going to happen at the end of its life. Now, I am not an expert in that at all, <laughs> so, so to find out more... <laughs> You would have to come to yeah. Katie's lecture. Well, you're a particle physicist. You should be able to tell us exactly where the particles will go during the... No. <laughs> I, I do, and, and, and I don't have enough computational power to get to the other end of that equation. <laughs> See, you've just, uh, you've just pointed out the other thing I, I do on a daily basis, or not at the moment, though, is to check out um, Betelgeuse, the star Betelgeuse, and, and oh, yes. its current oh, brightness, because, you know... Mm-hmm. Could be tomorrow, could be in 100,000 mm-hmm. years, but I want to make sure I'm ready. Don't miss it. Don't well, miss I would, it. I will definitely make sure if Katie doesn't address that in her lecture that I ask it as the first question at the end. Yes. Because it's a very good question. Yes. What's going to happen to, yeah. to So, So, people, if you're not aware of this, one of the stars that is relatively close um, to Earth is in the dying days of its life, you know, which could be another 
100,000 years, a million years. Uh, but of all the stars around us, it's the most likely to go nova in the near future. And it would basically look like a second moon, I think, wouldn't it? Um, vis- visibly, I think, Virginia, it would be pretty bright. Yeah, it's pretty. It's very close, and yeah. um, it will be very, very bright. You won't be able to miss it. Yeah, <laughs> you won't miss that second moon in the middle <laughs> of the day. <laughs> yeah, um, don't get too excited, folks, because it could. It might be a quarter of a million years away. No, so, get but, excited. Uh, Get excited. <laughs> anyway, I check the Twitter feed every day. Just exactly. like, is it happening? Is it happening? No, no, no. Anyway, normal day. You have a lot of daily Twitter checks, don't you? Yeah, I've got yeah. some issues. I find it. I just look, I just look at the sky. <laughs> you look at the sky. <laughs> you can't Old tell it's gone. Yeah. So, and in terms of people coming along, do they have to book or can they just turn up? What's the process? So, uh, if you can, we'd prefer if you register. Um, yep. So if you just Google July Lectures in Physics um, and follow through to the University of Melbourne page, uh, you can register via Eventbrite or even just go to Eventbrite and look up July Lectures in Physics. Yep. Um, as I said, there's two lectures left this year. Um, if you sign up for that, hopefully uh, you'll also register so that we can let you know next year uh, right. when, when we have a new theme and a whole new set of lecturers. Sounds great. Um, I should also mention that there's another first this year, um, which is that for the first time since 1968, we actually have an all-female lecturer lineup for the July Lectures in Physics. It just turned out that way. Only, um, only took 50 years. Only took 50 years. <laughs> well done, I'm Susie. Yeah. You should be. Yeah. You should be. Now, that's yeah. excellent to hear. And it, it's funny, uh, Virginia and I were just talking about, you know, we just had a whole of en- engineers from Swinburne, um, some of the great women out there uh, a week or so ago, and are doing that again in a couple of months. But it's great to see, especially for young, young women coming through, seeing that, hey, you know what? Um, there's plenty of women being very successful in these fields. And I, I think that's what it shows, is that people are often sort of saying, um, you know, oh, where, where are the women in physics? And it's like, well, we're here, we're doing great work. Like, yeah. just because yeah. you've never heard of me, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> doesn't affect looking? that. Yeah. So, so one of the yeah. nice things about having, yeah, the whole, the whole series of lecturers um, of that is just showing that the depth and mm. breadth of um, talent in physics in, yeah. in Melbourne. Um, uh, obviously, we have a lot of, Breath and depth of talent across the board, but um, it's nice to nice to yeah platform uh, the women for this year's event, and yeah. um, especially because a lot of these areas, interestingly, seem to have in their history uh, quite a lot of women involved in the discoveries. So uh, Vera Rubin was um, mm. the one of the astronomers who who you know, observed the. Uh, yep. The rotation of galaxies wasn't at the rotation rate of galaxies that predicted the existence of dark matter. Yeah. And um, our lecturer this week uh, was just gone was Dr. Eleanor Campbell from ANSTO, who works with the extreme beams of light for the, from the Australian synchrotron. Yeah. And she, she went through a whole series of crystallographers, people who've won Nobel Prize for crystallographic <clears throat> sorry, crystallographic measurements using uh, synchrotron light or X-rays. And it was they were basically all women. Yep. It was amazing. Yeah, and there's um, some wild stuff. I mean, we, we've had uh, Jocelyn Bell Burnell yeah, on Jocelyn the show uh, twice, uh, 20 years apart, if you can believe wow. that. Yeah, so wow. had her on once uh, 20 or so years ago and, and once just a couple of years ago, and she discovered the pulsar, which, yes. and we just saw in the news in the last few weeks all this amazing work on the background gravitational sort of waves um, yep. that's all you know related back to her work. And I saw that amazing footage of them telling her about it, and she was on the screen. I'm not sure if you saw that, but it was a beautiful moment. And in her in her last, um, you'd appreciate this, Virginia. In her last uh, interview with us, she cried a little bit because she realised she was going to get to see the James Webb launch. 
Um, and oh, she wasn't sure. Yeah, oh. she wasn't sure if she would in her wow. lifetime, and you know, because it'd been delayed and yeah. delayed and delayed, and you know, we we're all getting older, and and then all of a sudden it was going to happen, and, yeah. and she got very emotional about it. I did, I did too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, you know, it was. But that moment now, a year out, knowing what she's got to see is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And this latest piece of data on a background of gravitational waves that is only possible because of her pulsar work and the tenacity that she had, yeah. and that the, that belief that that result that she saw was actually something astronomical and worth looking at it's amazing yeah and she she spoke when when we spoke to her she spoke to the fact that because as a woman in the field at the time she had to have such a higher standard than her male counterparts that was the reason she managed to see what she did so in a way it was you know inappropriately her sort of imposter syndrome and her compulsion to actually be the best um, was why she saw something almost in the noise that none of her colleagues saw. Mm. And you, you hear that story, you go, oh, yeah. So why did it have to be that way? And, but, and, and she didn't win the Nobel Prize, mm. you know, yeah. when she should have. So, but boy, does she have the respect of the community and is just a lovely, lovely person. Yeah, I think so. she's continued with that respect. Mm. And she's also really been such a contributor back to, especially women's education. And yep. And. Um, you know that's her her life's work really, um, and it's really been fantastic to see her um, all those results coming from pulsars that yeah. um, have been enabled by that original detection. Yeah, it's wild stuff. All right, um, well, both of you, thanks so much for coming in today and, and talking to us on Einstein Go Go. I hope uh, many people uh, fill the theatre at the July lectures in physics, folks. If you want to imagine what this is like, um, picture that old, crusty, white male lecturer giving a boring presentation on physics. It is the opposite <laughs> of that. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Uh, a lot of people, when they think of physics lectures, that's, I mean, that's kind of what I had when I was a student, but, yeah, uh, yeah. some of the time. Um, but these these are the opposite of that. They're very dynamic. They're very interesting. And, you know, uh, no pressure, Virginia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It will be but, great. Uh, I mean, from what we've heard tonight, I'm very excited for yeah, Virginia's yeah, lecture on I'll on do Friday. my best. Come along. And, yeah. fun. And, and do make sure you see if you register online. There's, um, yeah, drinks and nibbles and chat. Come oh, and meet Virginia uh, in the hour before her lecture. Um, and then we'll crack on with some amazing physics. Sounds fantastic. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back with Einstein and Gogo in just a few minutes. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. We have our third and fourth guest in the studio with us now. Uh, first up is Dr. Emily Edwards, who is a postdoc in the field of primary immunodeficiency at Monash University and is the vice president of the Australian Patient I'll get this right, Emily, the Australian Primary Immunodeficiency Patient Support Network. Is that close? That's close enough, yes, thank you. Close enough. Uh, Completely wrong. Uh, No, not completely wrong at all. We've also got Joanna Kelly, who's a Melbourne filmmaker and patient advocate. Uh, Welcome, Jo. Thank you. Hi. It's good to have you both in the studio. Now, Emily, I sort of want to start off with you because you've been on the show before, but your research is all around um, these immunodeficiency conditions that people have. So just give us a bit of an overview of what we're talking about there. Yeah, so um, primary immunodeficiencies are diseases where where patients have what we call defects in their immune cells. So that can either be that an immune cell is missing, mm-hmm. um, doesn't get, doesn't develop or doesn't um, get past a certain point, if that makes sense. Um, so there's a roadblock. 
Or it can be that those um, immune cells are made, but they don't function. So they're not able to respond to things such as virus infections or bacterial infections. So that means then that the patients are more susceptible to severe and persistent infections. And this will be really, really important for the discussion we're having today. Um, And so in... Because these are inherited diseases, there is a genetic error mm-hmm. that then causes that disease. Right. But unfortunately, in some cases, we don't know what those genetic errors are. But for the talk that we're going to have up here about newborn screening as well, mm. we do know the genetic errors that cause this severe combined immunodeficiency, which is the most severe form of primary immunodeficiency. Right. I, I remember years ago I was emceeing an event at the RCH, the Royal Children's mm-hmm. Hospital, and uh, one of the researchers there was talking about this diagnostic odyssey mm-hmm. that uh, many families go on. I'm assuming this is still the case for a large number of kids that are born with various conditions where, you know, and he was talking like sometimes, I remember him, I can't remember his name, it might have been um, Professor Sinclair, Andrew Sinclair. Oh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, my brain's hopeless. Um, but <laughs> just, I don't remember. But he talked about seven years. Being a good result, and I was like, "Whoa!" And then he said that he was able to diagnose two hundred a year, and that also was a good result. And these, both these numbers to me seemed like so small. Or, you know, first one so large, second one so small compared to where we should be. Yeah, and we still have that problem. So particularly for adult patients, um, what can often happen is that because patients just don't have these. Um, accumulation of sort of di- of uh, infectious episodes across their life mm. they also have additional diseases such as autoimmunity cancer lymphoproliferative disease gastrointestinal disease what often happens is those diseases like the autoimmunity get diagnosed first so they end right. up in clinics for autoimmunity but the underlying primary immunodeficiency is not diagnosed if at all till much much later so actually a study that was undertaken by my laboratory a few years ago showed that in patients with what's called predominantly antibody deficiency which is the largest group of primary immunodeficiencies there's actually a nine year median um diagnostic delay Mm. and even in that case sometimes we don't know the genetics and it's difficult to treat and there's Mm. all these other issues but it's quite a a huge problem because even though genetics has come a long way we have to have other supportive evidence to show that any gene that we find an error in actually causes an effect on the immune system so we have to have functional evidence and those functional tests um, have been very slow and are not um, amenable to us doing like high throughput through diagnostic mm. laboratory. So that's something that we are actually trying to chip away at in our laboratory at Monash. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say. I mean, we we, we should comment that you know when we talk about a diagnostic, obviously, it's not it's not like waiting for a taxi. You know, this is a profoundly stressful, traumatic mm. period of time for for families where you know often the child or the adult is you know really sick mm-hmm. um, with no answers, and you know in some cases some gaslighting from clinicians etc etc that is very very traumatic for the entire family and friends and etc um for that period it's not just you're not just waiting around hoping you know you get a test result but everything's fine it's they're quite severely compromised health conditions right yeah and the issue is because they don't have effective treatment then their quality of life can be quite poor so Mm. until that that um diagnosis is found and they get the treatment that they need um they 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 just can't function in the world and it's quite amazing that when these diagnoses occur um 
For example, one of the most commonly used treatments for these patients is immunoglobulin replacement therapy. Um, Patients have reported that once they've gone on that, they've actually been able to go back to work which they hadn't been able to do for many, many years. Um, And, of course, the other thing to note here is that the only curative therapy for primary immunodeficiency is a bone marrow transplantation. Um, And the earlier that that can be implemented, then the better the outcomes right now joe you're you're here to talk about you know your story because you've you've been at the real awful end of this situation and give give us a bit about the sort of backstory of what happened with yourself and your child and how this fits into this whole game of genetic testing at birth or you know the prick testing that we do Yeah, sure. So basically, as Emily was saying, you cannot access treatment and support services without diagnosis. And that proved to be fatal for my son. So in Australia, around 300,000 children are born a year and we use a newborn screening heel prick test within 48 to 72 hours after birth to screen for a host of rare conditions. The world class standard is to test for 80, of which only four currently have no treatment. Unfortunately, Australian programs currently only screen for 25 diseases. Mm. No new diseases have been added for around 30 years until this year when I had SCID added, um, severe combined immunodeficiency, and that was after tragically losing my firstborn son at five months due to a lack of diagnostic testing. So you you personally took it upon yourself to get this added to that testing scheme I did, I after, did. after your your experience that's right um we lost him in 2018 and after a couple of years grieving um in bed i mm. grew curious as to what happened what went wrong what could have been different for us and yep. how could i help other families preventing future deaths when i discovered that this was a you know commonly tested for at newborn status illness um SCID, severe combined immunodeficiency, is a deficiency of B and C, B and T cells in mm-hmm. the baby. So essentially they have born with no immune system. Newborns have three months of their mummy's immunity before um, losing it. A normal, a healthy child will then have grown their own. Yep. Unfortunately, my son couldn't because he didn't have it to begin right, with. He right. had zero B and T cells upon birth. It's a genetic condition which we had no idea about because we'd had no children prior and no loss in our families prior to that. Yeah. So um, because it's so rare, only around four Australians are born a year with that disease, it wasn't picked up in hospital. So at three months when he began to get sicker and sicker, the hospital was very confused and we were admitted and they couldn't discover anything. And you mentioned gaslighting and I was repeatedly told mm. he was fine and he'd get better, but a mother right. knows. And I noticed that his breathing was um, troubled and they said he'll be fine, he'll be fine until his lungs collapsed and he was rushed to ICU. Right. Yeah. Only in ICU was an immunologist called and they discovered this lack of B and T cells, which um, eventually resolved in the diagnosis of SCID which, as Emily mentioned, a BMT, a bone marrow transplant, is the only solution. Unfortunately, a bone marrow transplant needs to take place before any diseases or illnesses are on board because there is no immune system to help otherwise. So unfortunately, although 
Um, he received a BMT. It was too late for him, and we lost him. Yeah, and so and and then uh, I, mean, I I find this extraordinary. And you know, I, w- I work with a, a couple of people in the kids' cancer charity that I run that have had similar scenarios where they've they've been in a scenario like yours, but then have bought something out of it for everyone else. I mean, how do you how do you get to that point where you've got the strength to do that? Um, honestly, fury. I was incredibly right. angry because we had been living in New York before we came to Australia. When we fell pregnant, my husband and I decided to move to Australia because we believed oh. it was a world-class health system. It proved to be a fatal mistake because had he been born in any of the other developed nations, they would have tested for SCID and he would have received a bone marrow transplant. Wow. Skid babies have a 95% chance of survival with diagnosis. So I was pretty devastated and angry, and it was my anger that fueled me to write the nomination to Parliament. I lobbied for four years during COVID, which was really difficult because health departments weren't very interested in Mm. topics other than COVID. I met with the um, chief health um, departments of each state because, unfortunately, um, the newborn screening is also state by state, not national, which is another thing we're tackling right now. Mm. And uh, finally, after four years of lobbying, it was officially added as of June this year. So now SCID is tested in all states across Australia. So so just to be clear, so we now test, is it 25? Things? Yes. So and, we need to test for 80. And others test for 80, of which only four are not treatable. That's is that, right. Am I getting the numbers right there? Yeah. And why I, – I thought there was a – I heard something about them moving – they were going to move to 80. Yes, yeah, so part of the lobbying involved a federal government election promise by the yep. Labor government to dedicate $38.4 million to overhaul our incredibly outdated testing system. Okay. You know, nothing's been updated for decades. Okay. And really they need that money to update the labs. So part of the problem is the lab testing. They do not have up-to-date equipment that can test for this because to test for 80 we don't need anything other than the existing heel prick test so we don't need any other test for the newborn it remains the same heel prick test that all babies get they squeeze an extra drop or two of blood literally one drop of blood extra onto the card it's the lab testing at the end of the line that is the problem that needs the funding we were really excited to hear Labor committing to this. Um, it's highly necessary and very overdue. So we were really disappointed to hear they have changed their mind. And why, they, why would sorry just why, why would they change their mind on this? This seems like a you know such a a simple process that can you know avoid extraordinary amounts of trauma for for families. Yeah, that's a really well, good Well, we question. wish we knew the answer to that question, mm. Shane, because we don't seem to be getting any answers as to why that's the case. Especially because financially it doesn't make any sense. This newborn screening test would be $10 a baby. Currently it costs around four and a half grand per night per child in ICU. Right. And we are missing five diagnoses a day. So five babies a day in Australia are missing a life-changing diagnosis, which often results in ICU stays, protracted stays in hospitals, and in the case of many children like my firstborn son, death. So we have not only the immense expense of hospital stays, far, far outweighing, you know, exponentially higher costs. It really doesn't make any sense. Yeah, Chris. How, how different are the screening regimes state to state? 
I mean, clearly, clearly it says like none of Not them are very. up to scratch, but okay, so they're all a bit crap. All between 23 and 25 diseases are being tested instead of the 80, so se- severely under-supported. Is there, you know, I was thinking about different approaches to getting things across the line. Is mm-hmm. there, I mean, there are states that, that do things differently in other areas mm-hmm. as well. You know, we've seen that with abortion. We've seen that with, um, I'm pretty sure medicinal cannabis is good yep. to go yep. in the ACT, which is, you know, just criminal that it's that it's not elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, that it's dealt with differently, especially here mm-hmm. in Victoria. You know, we've seen um, a lot of push on that. Is it worth sort of going to one state and, and demonstrating, you know, the, the appropriate level of, of care and precision yeah. and, then, and then guilting the other states into it. Is that, you know... That can work for some things. So, for example, here in Victoria, we have got a really well-set-up um, subcutaneous immunoglobulin program, right. um, and that's been used as sort of like a blueprint to show the other states in Australia that that's the standard of care that Mm. is required for patients with primary immunodeficiencies as well as other patients that receive this therapy. That can work, but that also then again needs the investment, investment of funds for that to be set up first and that's often seems to be really difficult i think often what goes is well we'll just take what we've got and make the best of it which which you know is very frustrating because that is in my mind at least is not the best way forward um and you know of course it's taken immense work by joe to get this across the line for us to get skid on the agenda but then it took extra work making sure that every state and territory then came on board because they can make their own decisions even when it's recommended Mm. they make the ultimate decision Mm. on whether they're going to invest the funding into this so not all states are actually live yet with routine um newborn screening for skid so some are still in the pilot stages, um, but I know that New South Wales has run a program for um, uh, multiple years now. They were actually the first state, even before Joe got things across the line, to actually implement SCID um, in, a, in a pilot program. Um, WA's just come online to be doing that officially as yep. a standard of care, but it takes so much work to get them across. It's, I wish it was as simple as to say, right, well, maybe we can go to the Victorian government mm. health minister and say, hey, mm. we need to do this. What do you reckon? But it's just it just takes so much hard work. And mm. at the end of the day, there are two important factors. One, equality for all Australians. So yeah, it doesn't make mm-hmm. sense yeah, yeah. and it's unfair to have some states being ahead of others. And also economies of scale. It makes right, yeah. far more sense for investment to be spent in a clever way by using economies of scale to update all of the outdated lab equipment. This could be too specific a question, but um, do you know what the situation is in New Zealand? Are they up there with the rest of the world in terms of... I believe they so. Are. I believe yeah. New Zealand have been well ahead of us. World I think class. they've been doing it for years over wow. there. Yeah, it's yeah. extraordinary. We're going to take a short break um, for some music and we'll come back and continue this conversation. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple In the studio with us is Dr. Emily Edwards from Monash University and also Joe Kelly, who is a Melbourne filmmaker and patient advocate. And we've been discussing genetic testing that occurs through the heel prick process um, with children. And Australia's amazing record of testing for 25 things, whereas the rest of the world tests for 80. Do, Emily, do we have any idea why we're so behind here? I, I mean... I can hear someone out there saying cost, but mm-hmm. where I hear cost, I interpret as investment. Mm. 
because this seems like an investment in people's futures and a reduction in cost long-term as opposed to just cost. I mean, a nuclear submarine is a cost. Mm -hmm. Mm. Sorry, I have to bring that up. A second. (laughs) Yeah, quite a big cost, isn't it? A big cost, yeah. 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 Uh, why, Why would we not do this? Well, I really don't know. I'm in the same sort of mindset as you, to be honest, Shane. I mean, any this outlay obviously is is a big outlay at the beginning mm. to set everything up, but it the longevity of that and what that means for the future of Australians is huge. So, you know, like you said, you diagnose the disease at birth. For for someone with skid, that is. A huge transformation because that means that they have access to life-saving and curative bone marrow transplantation. And the other thing that's nicely coming through to um, complement that now in research setting is gene therapy, which will also be curative. Yep. Yep. But even if the, di- and the disease is not curative because of this newborn screening, it can have a dramatic impact on someone's quality of life. Yeah. Yeah. And do we not all deserve to have the best quality of life possible that should be a standard for all of us but it's got a far wider reaching impact than just on that individual um, patient or baby it has the impact on their wider network and their experiences it has an impact as joe has already said on the economic cost to the health system because a child for example that um is not diagnosed at skid at birth, and there was a, a young boy that was that died at three years of age a few years back, um, who had a late diagnosis of skid, had long sort of um, hospital stays between between this state and another. That went that ran into millions of dollars. Mm. Whereas if that child had had access to newborn screening, he could have been diagnosed earlier. He could have had his bone transplant marrow transplant earlier he could have had extra any extra treatment he'd needed earlier and that could have then you know stopped what had what was the you know his his death so it's to me it to me it just seems like a no-brainer i don't really understand what is holding it holding this back and of course you know unfortunately when you try to get answers, you often don't get them. You often get stonewalled. And this is where, you know, Joe jo comes in on one angle from her personal perspective. The patient organisations are actually banding together. Yep. So OzPips is working alongside um, Better Access Australia, amongst other organisations, and also the JMF Centre in Melbourne, to try and get this multi-pronged approach. And we're not just – we're working sort of at our different angles, but we're also – working together as a coordinated effort to try and get this problem solved. It doesn't just need to be a state-to-state thing. It needs to be a nationalised, world-class, newborn screening programme. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, in the break we were chatting a little bit, and one of the questions I asked you was around the research, and I think, Joe, you said the research is done. We don't need to do our own research. Mm -hmm. It's it's been done elsewhere, and, and, uh, you know, I hate that we're talking about economics on this, but even if we were that seems to play out in the positive mm. direction. Yeah. But, you know, do we not want to move towards a healthcare system that is, and I use the term, evidence-based care mm-hmm. and patient-centred care? Exactly. And, shit, if we just took those two principles and started redesigning our system around that, this is a no-brainer. It doesn't seem to be a, a big deal. Now, you know, maybe me, you, and all those other 
um, nations that are, you know, of which there are many that are doing 80 of these tests are all wrong. But something tells me that's probably not the case. You know, we're just behind and we're not, we're not doing the right thing here. I mean, I think we have so many limitations in healthcare at the moment, but the, the impact is extraordinary. And Joe, I have to say, I'm, I'm sorry that you have to be one of the people who, you know, is campaigning for this. Thank you. That's that very should not be the case. Yeah. And I think, you know, you've done the incredible job to, to get one added. Um, you, you're going to have to live to about 300 if you do it one at a time. <laughs> I know. That's the frustrating thing. Yeah. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. No. The rest of the developed world is already using these tests. We, we simply need to... Catch up. Catch up, yeah. yeah. And my second son is a perfect example. Knowing that he had a chance of being born with SCID, we were right. able to diagnose in utero. At six weeks old, he uh, received a bone marrow transplant that's been successful, and he's now a happy, thriving, perfectly uh, healthy uh, little boy. Uh, so yeah. I just hope the same could happen for future families yeah. rather than suffering the trauma that we went through. Well, delighted to hear that about mm. your your healthy you. son. That fantastic news. And I think uh, if there's one... One thing that frustrates frustrates us a lot here on the show is when we can see that the science is not being used. Um, That is incredibly frustrating. We're seeing it with climate. We're seeing it in other areas. And in this area, it's just, you know, it's it's unbelievable that that it's going on. So I hope that there are changes afoot. And Emily Joe, thanks both of you for coming in today. It's been great hearing about these stories. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Chris KP, uh, you had some news, but frankly, I don't care relative to this. No, no, I feel, <laughs> I think, I feel uh, like it's... Uh, in, this is important well, stuff. I feel like we've got some important stuff to talk about. Yeah, yeah. so have you got a big week coming up? Uh, I've got enough, yeah. I've <laughs> got enough things in it. You have, a, you have a new imperial leader at CSIRO. Oh, yes, we do, yes, uh, Doug Hilton is joining us. From the Walter and Laser Hall Institute. Yes. He's been on the show many times. Yes. So he's leaving the Parkville area, heading out to Clayton. Yes, I, I believe he doesn't start till September, but um, we're very excited. We're, we're investing uh, taxpayers' money in red carpet. We don't want to hear that. Uh, <laughs> folks, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo, uh, myself, Dr. Shane, and Chris KP have uh, thankfully had your company, and we will chat to you again next week. Another big week next week, so a lot of good shows coming up over the next few months. Have a great Sunday, and we'll chat to you next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Twitter account or Facebook page.